This is the Pain Information Network, and we're going to talk a little bit about opioids today. I decided to talk a little bit about opioids because we can break it up, a big, huge subject that is in constant evolution. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis to the note uh, this week, the president appointed Chris Christie to a task force on opioids. Um, I also heard something that was very interesting that uh, it was attributed uh, to somebody that I, I just had to find, but uh, I overheard that a physician uh, thought that the opioid crisis was similar to the feeling they had when uh, AIDS was just starting to come in its evolution. And I was there with uh, the beginning of HIV, understanding it, misunderstanding it, and how we eventually ended up with successful treatments, once thinking, oh, there's nothing we can do, and then eventually getting it right. So that is still a feeling that uh, seems just like yesterday. And that's the way it feels with opioids. It, it really does feel like we're not in the Wild West, but we're in a place we don't want to be. We kind of know how to prescribe them, and it's kind of understood across the community uh, what we should be looking for uh, in terms of appropriate application of opioid therapy, misuse, abuse, and diversion, how to react to that. But then again, it's not really well understood. Once again, physicians don't. Well, you know, really across the medical community, we don't get much training in our uh, curriculum, in our core curriculum, on how to administer and monitor opioids and in general treating pain. So we learn as we go along, and we tend to be the product of our environment. If we're around a lot of pain or around very experienced practitioners that use a lot of controlled substances, we get a little better at it. If it's something we dabble in, not so much. So today I'm going to go through some of the basics of opioids. And an inspiration is in Pain Physician Journal, March 2017, the opioid guidelines came out. It's a special, it's a special edition, really. And it's on the it's on the web. It's free. So go to asipp.org and you can download it. And it's a daunting very complex, uh, just <laughs> tremendous work of art. But take it in pieces. Take it in, in small chunks. Uh, it's not something to be consumed all at once. It truly is a reference. These guidelines have been in evolution for over a decade, and they are really coming to, um, I think, state-of-the-art for this type of document. Of course, it's a guideline. It's not standard of care, just like the CDC guidelines are not standard of care. But these opioid guidelines going back many years were uh, following the mirror image of SAMHSA and other organizations about the potential for misuse, abuse, and diversion, comma, and the potential for the uh, bigger problem, and that's uh, bad outcome and, you know, unfortunately deaths. So we've been following it. It wasn't just morphine milligram equivalents. It was about good practice, and that's what these guidelines are all about. So I'll be going through those as well. But let's talk about opioids. Okay. Opioid therapy, there are principles. There's drug selection, dosing to get the good effect, 
you want to treat the side effects, and we've got really great drugs now to help with some of those side effects. Say that itching, oh, my gosh, my doctor gave me morphine, and I had this red streak in my vein, or I got very itchy. Well, that's a histamine release. That is not an allergy per se. So, I mean, knowing what side effects are all about helps you with having choices and selection at a later date. If you do need morphine and you weren't really allergic to it, you can help with that side effect. And how about constipation? We have really good drugs for that now. And managing uh, poorly responsive patients. Okay, this is important. DEA classification. Schedule 1. Schedule 1 does not mean it's necessarily more potent. It just means there's no legitimate medical use. That'd be like heroin, crack cocaine, and yes, marijuana. So, you know, people say, well, it's just marijuana. No, it's not just marijuana. It's a Schedule 1 drug. On a federal level, it's a Schedule 1 drug with no legitimate medical use, and it falls in the same category as heroin. So we have to come to grips with that and really understand how to deal with that. It's not just simply saying, oh, everybody does it. Now, I schedule two. That's a high risk of abuse. These are uh, prescriptions that, well, they can be electronic in some instances, but usually it's a, it's a written prescription, and you can't have refills on it. Hydrocodone was just elevated from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2, uh, well, fairly recently, a couple of years ago. Oxycodone, morphine, they're Schedule 2 drugs. Those are uh, pretty well known, but that doesn't mean they're stronger than Schedule 3. All it means is that they have a high risk of abuse. But Schedule 3s, of course, can be abused too. They have an intermediate risk of abuse. Schedule 3s can be called in. You can call them up, say, 6 refill. It's not ideal <laughs> for 6 refills. Now, you want to see them at probably every two-month intervals. And that would be like codeine and um, buprenorphine and the like. And I hope buprenorphine stays Schedule 3. Very, very good drug, important drug. Schedule 4, it has a lower risk of abuse. Uh, that would be like Fiora said, some places, Soma, or um, it, its better name is, uh, <laughs> I guess, a, quote, muscle relaxant that really isn't. Um, you got to really be careful with some of these drugs. It should be probably a higher scheduled drugs. But um, it doesn't mean it necessarily has a lower risk of problems, but a lower risk of abuse. Fiora said uh, has... Uh, a, central nervous system depressant in it. Soma is metabolized uh, to um, uh, meprobamate, which is a central nervous system depressant. Uh, so it probably works more like a barbiturate than a muscle relaxant. It just uh, settles people down. All right, so the mechanisms of action. Okay, mu opioid receptor. You hear me talk about that, mu, M-U. Analgesia, respiratory depression, meiosis, or little eyes, little tiny pinpoint eyes. Decreased gastric mo uh, motility, euphoria. It doesn't really have a ceiling effect for analgesia. You give more, you get more about everything, problems included. Right, kappa, spinal analgesia, meiosis. Okay, those pupils again. Sedation, ceiling effect. It's there. Sigma. Uh, I'm not sure about this one, and this is in evolution. And even though Goodman and Gilman's pharmacologic basis of therapeutics uh, says it has respiratory depression analgesia, I think that's a, kind of a work in progress. Um, and um, there are others that uh, lead to hallucination, confusion, 
uh, respiratory, uh, either suppression or stimulation. But I, I, I don't, I don't think we need to go into the deltas and all those sort of things. It's just, it's, I don't think it's relevant now. Think uh, opioids. Think mu opioid receptor. All right. So also think about how the mu opioid, mu opioid receptor is. Uh, either stimulated or partially stimulated or occupied without full activity because we'd be talking about that like with buprenorphine or some of these other drugs that uh, uh, are almost historical like pentazosine. Okay, drug selection. Well, there's immediate release, and we know from the CDC guidelines they say you don't need them more than three days for acute pain. That's not true. You don't want to put numbers on things like this. You want a clinician's judgment to lead the way. A well-trained clinician and anybody that treats uh, pain knows that acute pain happens uh, chronically, and chronic pain can happen acutely. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but think about that. Chew on that. So you want to be able to have the option to use immediate release preparations. Although they're usually used for acute pain, they can be used for chronic pain. They absolutely can. So you find the right dose, and they are commonly used for what's called rescue or breakthrough. I think most folks that are in pain management these days are starting to discourage breakthrough medication. It's just more pills. So in select patients, it can be used for long-term management, so keep that in mind. All right, there, now there's these pharmacokinetically longer-acting drugs to keep uh, the drug in the serum longer and smooth you out so that if the one line it, um, on the curve is here and another line is higher uh, and somewhere in between you're getting good analgesia with very few side effects, you want to stay between those two lines. And that's what the long-acting uh, drugs uh, strive to do. All right, so opioid therapy. There's drug selection, extended release. Well, uh, what about extended release? Is there any proof that there's less misuse, abuse, and diversion? I would say with the OxyContin debacle, we would say no. But OxyContin in its original formulation had a, up to 30% of its uh, drug released uh, very quickly. So that was a front row seat. You got a, a lot of drug quick and it was an intense euphoria and that was the problem with that drug it's been changed since and it's a really really good drug but it's a pharmacokinetically long-acting agent as is uh, some of the long-acting morphines long-acting opanas or oxymorphones the fentanyls uh, by patch not by sucker uh, etc um so the, the thought was it would be preferred because of improved treatment adherence. I don't think there's good evidence for that. And the likelihood of reduced risk in those with addictive disease. I would say absolutely not. So, um, yes, these drugs can be crushed and snorted, but there are many abuse deterrent preparations now out there and should be entertained, although the insurance companies don't like them. They're expensive. They don't like them. So they want you to use the ones that are of risk. Morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl, buprenorphine, and uh, the drug that does not have a sense of humor that I am aware of, methadone. Uh, methadone is pretty long-acting, but it's long-acting for all the wrong reasons. Methadone is long-acting because uh, of its metabolic pathway, its potential for interference, and its elimination con. And, and, and the biggest problem with methadone is the analgesic capacity 
is shorter than its potential for half-life. So, anyway, uh, you adjust these doses uh, usually two to three times a day and hopefully just two. All right, poor choices, choices for chronic pain. All right, off the table in America is meperidine. Off the table in America is proproxifene. Um, the mixed agonist antagonists I alluded to, like the pentazosine, and now bufene, uh, desosine, and butorphanol, uh, well, they compete with agonists and can lead to withdrawal. So, in other words, if somebody's taking a pure new opioid agonist, just like a morphine or a hydrocodone, oxycodone, and you give them one of these mixed agonist antagonists, that uh, these drugs can actually reverse uh, the agent and lead to potential for withdrawal. Yeah, they have some analgesic capacity, but it only goes so high. It's got a ceiling effect. And it tends to um, mess with your head a little bit more. It can uh, produce uh, psychodomimetic uh, effects. So, okay, next podcast we're going to go into opioid therapy, routes of administration, and we're going to talk about metabolism. I think that's pretty much for now, and um, I will talk to you soon.